Hi, I'm Craig O'Shaughnessy, and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to episode 82 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. This week, I speak to leading tennis strategist and analyst Craig O'Shaughnessy. Craig has famously worked with Novak Djokovic and currently works with Matteo Berrettini and Jan Leonard Struff. We chat about data, the benefits of it, how he puts it all together and works with the teams. And he tells us some stories from some of his players he's worked with. Before we get started, a shout out to our podcast sponsor, Slinger, our favorite ball machine, which is also portable and can store all your tennis equipment. Head over to slingerbag.com to check it out and get all the info and pricing. Okay, really excited to get talking to Craig. Here we go. Hi, Craig. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm in Austin, Texas today and uh, nice weather. Aussie Open's kicking off, but um, we're going to be doing it from afar this year. Great. And first of all, excited to have you on. It's been a while. I've been wanting to get you on. People have asked to get you on. So really great to get you, ask you some questions and get to know more about you. But Let's start first of all with you're in Austin. The Aussie Open's going to be on in Australia, obviously. Though it could be on a different country, the way Collie's going, you never know. How do you work with the different time zones and then also not being on site? Yeah, it, it actually works out really well for me. So the, there's a few different aspects to my business uh, working with players. So there's uh, and everything centers around match video. So when a player plays a match, uh, wherever they are in the world, that match typically is going to have uh, it's going to appear on tennis TV or the tennis channel. Um, you know, depending on the courts they're on. And I get the I get the footage of the match and I have it tagged uh, in Dartfish software. And it's the tagging panel is set up to extract the metrics that I want out of it. So. You know, I look at eight different locations in the service box. I look at an ABCD location on the baseline. Um, I put a very heavy influence uh, in the reporting into uh, the first four shots. So where did the serve go? What shot was hit by the return? Where did the return go to that ABC area? The serve plus one and the return plus one. So, you know, a lot of the research that I've done in the past strongly indicates that whoever wins the battle of the first four shots is going to win the match. Essentially, the first two times you touch the ball means more than the rest of the touches in that rally. So uh, I do a lot of video analysis, and it's a combination of studying the players who I'm working with, but also scouting upcoming opponents. So um, I do both. And and essentially, you know, I'm going to be able to do the, the exact same job and deliver the same metrics, whether I'm in Austin or whether I'm in Melbourne, um, you know, the face-to-face aspect of it will be missing um you know sometimes there's you know deeper questions a player wants to ask but you know i also correspond with them now on zoom so we do get to see each other we do get to go through everything that we're doing and you know the the players coach that travels with them all the time is there as well so it's a real team effort you know i specialize in the strategy side and and um you know it's not really going to affect me at all when i'm in austin and you know the aussie opens being played in melbourne you give them the strategy and they execute. There you go. I, I got the easy part. <laughs> you hit it here and then hit it there. 
and, and they've got to go out and do it. If it wins, you're the hero. If you lose, it's your fault. You gave me the wrong plan. There's two questions I thought of there. One is when you work with a team, who do you deal with the most? Is it the player or the coach or is it always a trio? That's a fantastic question. Um, it's varied in the past. Some players who are a little bit more wary of like, oh my goodness, I've got another coach now. I just want one unified voice. Craig, can you please give all the information to my coach and then he can pass it to me? Um, I tried that. It's it's the worst way of all to do it. You know, I'm a specialist in this area. And for me, it's very important to deliver that information. And, you know, we're watching video, we're pausing video. The, the elements that I want to make sure that the player really gets, that's my message. So what happens... Uh, now is it, with all the teams that I work with is the the player will be there whether it's in person the player the coach whether it's the fitness coach whoever's part of that team uh, we all get together I deliver the message we all interact the coach will have something to say the player will ask questions of myself and the coach um, and that's by far the best way to do it so you know everybody's clear on you know the, the, who's specializing in what area but you know the the fitness coach is going to you know have his specific role where he's the most important person that day when they go to the gym and they, they warm up for the match. Um, but you know, when it's time to say, okay, I play this guy, how do I play and what's, you know, what, how do I maximize my chances of winning? That is my message. And that's what I deliver to the team. Oh, great. Yeah. It's a good way. And then plus if there are any issues, they can all bring them up at the meeting rather than an hour later, the fitness guy has a query. And so this yeah. match is going to happen in Australia. Are they being tagged live? Are you tagging them yourself or do you have a team that tags them? Um, I outsource to Warren Pretorius at Tennis Analytics. So Warren's a, a very good friend of mine. He has a company that essentially does that. He does tagging. So he's got uh, around 50 collegiate teams here in the US. He, he also works with Tennis Canada and the USTA. And um, I, I used to do it all myself. It's such a time-consuming job to do match tagging so i said you know warren here's my panel this is what i want tagged um and and his team now does it which really really helps me to take that out of it from from um well, what's given back to me is the complete match is tagged and it's online so i can go to any point um and go and watch it immediately uh there's what what we have is called as a match intelligence report and it's a 10-page document that goes very deeply into the elements of the match that, that we want tagged and we want to look at. And, um, you know, I start with a match intelligence report. I look at the numbers. The numbers lead me to the video. Quite often, the video is the, the centerpiece. So uh, as we're on Zoom and, and going over the video and pausing it, you know, that's, that's really what we look at. So it's a combination of the match intelligence report that has all the data and the, and the video which shows the tendencies, and you know, I uh, when I deliver the um, the presentation of the player, I'm going to put the same strategy, you know, one point after the other. So, for instance, if the opponent is weak, uh, uh, returning a wide serve and a juice court and making errors there, or, or leaving short balls off the return, when I do the report to the player, I'm going to put all of those one after the other so that they can see that trend and and the video is really the centerpiece of um, of the strategy component that I deliver. It's, it's interesting, the whole the video analysis thing. What you've brought to this game is incredible. Like 
would you agree to saying tennis is, is still a long way behind all the other sports in terms of video? And by I mean all the sports, maybe I mean football, soccer, those sort of sports. I think we're getting better at, you know, doing it on a kind of a one-by-one one scale. When you're looking at, say, you know, a football team, but they've got a, they've got essentially, uh, maybe they've got a dozen people in their video department and they're, they're, you know, some are just looking at next week's opponents, some are looking at your players, some are looking at just offense or defense, you know, if it's an American football team. But um, I think, you know, what we're delivering to the players now, I think is very, very good. And I think that would stack up with the message that's delivered in other sports. I think where we're lacking is how many people are doing it and how many players are getting it. So just, you know, naturally in a team atmosphere, you know, there's there's more people involved, there's more money involved, there's more resources to have a full video department. Whereas, you know, essentially I'm the video department for, for the players that I work with. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing, you know, all of the scouting and all of their matches and, you know, it, it's a lot. So, you know, the ability for me to scale is 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 tough. Um, but I think in other sports, you know, there's a lot more players getting this information, whereas in tennis, the information is very, very good, but it's very, very limited. It's probably more precise in tennis, the information, because it's so singular. But as you say, it's it comes down to resources. That is a good point. And so the likes of, you've, you've famously worked with uh, Novak Djokovic, more recently Berrettini, what is the clear advantage you can tell our listeners that you give these guys from day one? There's no surprises on the other side of the court. So uh, the year before, I remember Roger Federer went, I think it was the Doha uh, tournament, and he lost to a guy that he'd never played before. And it was it was a close match. He had his chances. Um, I, I think it went down to a tiebreaker in the third set. But, you know, Roger said, you know, the, the problem for, for me in this match is that I've never seen this guy play. I don't know what his strengths and weaknesses are. I don't know, you know, if, if he starts getting hot in a match, do I go away from that area or do I, I keep going there because, you know, he, he doesn't usually do that. So, you know, for three years, I did a preview uh, when I was working with Novak, 2017, 2018, 2019. Every single match he played, including players he'd never played before, he received a, a report on that player, which is a combination of video and a combination of match metrics. And it could have been, you know, several, a combination of several of those matches that the opponent played. So what a big advantage that, that this type of analysis delivers is that you know the opponent almost better than they know their game before you step on the court. You know the tendencies. You know where they're going to serve on big points. You know... You know, even to the you have a specific location where to return the serve, which will extract the most errors. You know the best baseline patterns. You know what to approach. Um, so, you know, the understanding, you know, tennis used to be, um, you know, I, I guess I've got to go back and explain this. 1991 was the first year official statistics started in tennis, which you know, was just crazy compared to other sports. So before 1991, if you're a coach, which is still, you know, a, a lot of, coaches that are out there um, at the moment, you know, I graduated college in 1991 and got involved in tennis. But before 1991, you just, you had to guess and you had to have an opinion on something. And, you know, it's it, sometimes you're right. Sometimes you're really, really wrong. Um, and then for a long time, we still 
have this culture that tennis is a game of feel. Tennis is, you know, it's a game more about you. Just go out to the court and you do what you want to do and that's going to be enough. And and ultimately, you know, that's it, it's just not true. You know, you, when you look at a, a season and you say, okay, you ask a player, look back to your last 12 months. How many times did you walk off the court and say, wow, I played amazing today. My backhand was on, my forehand was good, I served well, I wasn't nervous, I felt calm, I handled the big moments. You ask that to a player at any level of the game, the most typical answer is two. And that, and that could still be elevated. So if you played 50 matches, 48 of those 50 matches, your A game is not going to turn up. So ultimately, my message is this, is that your job is not to go out to the court and play great tennis because the reality says that's probably not going to happen. Your job is to go out there and make the opponent play bad. Take the opponent's A game and dismantle it and take make their B game and dismantle that and make them play their C game or their D game, D game and, and, and beat them mentally. You know, have the opponent have no idea how to beat you. And that's ultimately, you know, how a lot of these matches are won. You, you know, you look at even at the, at the pro level, it's, it's actually quite rare that the match loser will battle with every single, you know, atom of their body, everything that they've got, are they going to battle to the very last point? Quite often, you know, there's there's a stage in the match where they're like, the realization sets in, I, I don't think I'm going to win this match today. And, and there's a lot of different ways that players, you know, give up. Maybe they stop going for too much. Maybe they, they take on a whole lot more risk. I say, well, if it goes in for a while, great. But, you know, let's see you do that for a set. So maybe they get a little bit angry. Maybe they get down. You see their hands kind of raising out. It's like, well, what have I got to do today to win points? So ultimately, when you go and play matches, it's far more about the person on the other side of the court. You know, the person on the other side of the court is the most important person on that tennis court. It's your job to make them play bad. It's your job to, um, you know, to hide what you're doing on your side of the court which is why I teach a lot of primary and secondary patterns. Primary patterns are the things that you want to do a lot of, that you're going to have a winning percentage. And secondary patterns are your surprise elements that you want to do when the opponent's not expecting it or where the scoreboard is not pressuring you. So ultimately, that's kind of a big picture overview of how all this comes together. Your services, let's say you give them to a player ranked 250 in the world, say, okay, I'm going to pay to have Craig on your team this year. Let's take you to the next level. But if if these players don't have full shot selection, which many players, you know, they have some good shots, but not all the shots are unbelievable. They have total mastery control of. Of course. How useful are you to the lower ranked players? Are they really missing out on by not having you or you can you can still give them a massive edge? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the first things that you want to do with these players, you know, and I've worked with a lot, you know, in that 150 to 250 range, um, is is figure out where they're strong and where they're weak. You know, a lot of times they have an idea, but they don't really know. And I'll give you a classic example. I started working with Rajiv Ram back um, around 2011, I think it was, and Rajiv had previously um, won the Newport ATP event. He'd, he'd moved into the top 100. He had his best ranking around 80. And then you know, a year later, he hasn't defended that ranking and he's back out um, to around 180. And, and you know, I started working with him and at the Atlanta event and, and you know, Rajiv 
he got lost with, with, with the coaching advice that he was getting. I remember the conversation, him saying, well, you know, it's too tough. Coaches think it's too tough in today's game to go to the net. It's too tough to serve and volley. It's, it's, it's too tough to attack like that. And so Rajiv, you know, he's not the fastest guy, but he's really, really good when he comes forward and he's, he's not, you know, nearly as good with his win percentages from the baseline. So, um, I started working with him at Atlanta where he beat Dimitrov in the first round. He beat Leighton Hewitt in the second round. He had match points against Ryan Harrison in, in the quarterfinals and, and lost that match. But to cut a long story short, I put those three matches together in Darfish and we discovered in those three matches, he'd only hit one backhand winner. Now, I sat on the side of the court and watched all three matches and I hadn't picked up on that. I'd also tagged those three matches, but looked at them separately. And, and with the low backhand number, you're like, well, okay, it's kind of a one-off. But, you know, his opponents, I think, had 27 and he had one. And I went and looked at the one and it was a neck cord. So essentially he, did, he had zero. So I'm like, holy cow, this guy's, you know, got no backhand. And then I'm like, hopefully he's got some, you know, he's, he's forcing errors from his backhand, which, you know, for a lot of times it's the backhand down the line. So it was really easy. I clicked on the opponent's forehand errors and watched all of them. And there was not one forehand error in those three matches from Rajiv's backhand down the line. So we'd uncovered a real hole in his game. And I said to Rajiv, you know, do you realize in essentially in three matches, you haven't hit a backhand winner. And he's like, yeah, you know, it kind of makes sense because I always struggle against lefties that attack his backhand and he struggles against righties that have a good run around forehand that attack his backhand. So we came up with a strategy to limit his backhand and um, to hit to parts of the court that that brought the ball back to his forehand. And within a year, we had him back inside the top 100 in the world. So without that technology, we wouldn't have really figured out where that hot spot was in the in the weaker side of his game and um it, it made a huge difference for him to to know okay yes i've got a bit of a weakness here so yes i do i need to um improve it on the practice court and, and make it less of a weakness but i also need to shield it and cover it and protect it in a match and i know where to hit the ball to to do that so that that was you know that was a, a big part of of the resurgence of, of Rajiv's um career Nice. It's great to see how it's not only about a match strategy. There's more how you can apply all that data to the training court, which ultimately gets you better again and finds those weaknesses, which, you know, sometimes you probably don't believe you have them. And if Craig's come and telling you, oh, look at this here, you haven't hit a backhand or you can't hit winners or you're not forcing errors, then it's a big hole and it gives you something to work on. So it's great to see that. And what about players? getting access to people like you. There can't be too many people that I know of like you. I do know Mike James. He's actually was on the podcast a while ago. And is there, are there many people like you? And is there a certain level of player that can only afford to use somebody like you? No, not at all. Um, you know, I'm working with, with players at all level of the game. You know, in the last couple of months, there was uh, a girl, Futures, in, in, in the Middle East, in Egypt and Tunisia. And I was do, sending through game plans and we were Zooming regularly and going over matches. She was recording her matches there and we were looking at them uh, here in Austin and and tagging them and saying, okay, this is where you're good and where you need to improve. And then she would tell me who her next opponent is. And, you know, for a lot of those matches, you know, the opponents, there's their matches are on YouTube. So we were able to scout um, their opponents in future rounds. We were able to see what they were doing. So, you know, I for me... It's, I work with players at any level of the game. It doesn't matter at all. You know, if you are jazzed about tennis and you want to improve and be the best you can be, 
then I'd love to be on your team. Was there a story, I remember somebody telling me that you were taking screenshots of all the stats on the on the computer so oh, so yeah. you could use them. What was, is our old stats not available? Yeah, this is one of the craziest things in our sport. Um, so I, I first started getting into the analytics side in 2015. So I'm at the 2015 Australian Open and... Um, and, you know, I, I asked, you know, I, I'm, I've got a, a press pass. Um, I'm coaching there. And in the in the press area, there's a, a screen in front of you that's got all the match analytics for the entire tournament. You know, it's they're given more to the press to help write their stories than they are to the players, which is, you know, the, which is a little crazy. But, you know, the players get some data, but the, the data in the press area is, is more robust. So anyway, you know, I, it, it, it came to light through conversations that, I, I go back and say, okay, this is 2015. This is amazing data. I want to go back and see last year's. And they're like, well, we don't have it. You can't see it. I'm like, what do you mean I can't see it? The tournament happened. You you did this process last year. And they're like, yeah, we did it. But it, it, we archive it. I'm like, well, what, what do you mean? You know, you, you, it's like going to the Super Bowl and, and saying, I, I want information on the quarterback from last year. They're saying, well, we don't have it. it it's just absolutely crazy. But, it, you know, essentially I learned that as soon as that tournament ends, the unless you are on site during that event, you will not be able to access all of that data afterwards. And it's it's absolutely bizarre that, that this is happening in our sport. So, I you know, I had to make a decision at the tournament, like, do I let all of this data go? And, and essentially it's like, I don't even know why I'm going to take pictures of all this, but I, I don't know what I'm going to use it for, but I know there's a huge problem if I don't. There's a huge problem because I'll never be able to see this data again. So I sat at my at the terminal and I just, you know, I had to have one hand on the mouse to, to keep scrolling through the pages. And I took about 3,000 screenshots and I did that for about six grand slams or eight grand slams, I think. Um, just, you know, and, and this is before I'm working with Novak. You know, this is 2015, but a lot of that data w- was, you know, so valuable for me later on when I have to go and scout an opponent. I'm like, well, you know, th- they won four matches in Australia back in 2015. I'm the only guy that has got that data now. I, I go back and look and I see all the tendencies of that player. So, it, it, you know, I didn't know why I was doing it at the time, but it was one of the best things I've ever done. Now um, you can get a PDF so I don't have to take screenshots, but – the data's all gone. You still can't access all of that robust data after the tournament's over. So, you know, um, it, it, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. You know, people in, in tennis want more data and it, it's, you know, we're not doing the job of, of getting everybody and, and being as open sourced certainly as we could be. Yeah, I think in this day and age, that's not good enough. That should be available to all, especially people working, you guys and of people course. involved in the software side where they can, there's APIs for everything this year. I I don't know. Anyway, I'm sure that's another that's another conversation. But yeah, tell me what's it like working with the world's best athlete, Novak Djokovic, and even Berrettini. These guys are the best in the world. How good are they to work with? Yeah, you know, it's amazing. In some parts, that there's there's some element of this that it's almost identical to coaching a 16 year old boy. It's almost identical. Because you still you got the, the court is the same, the ball is the same, the rackets are the same. It's just this, you know the two sixteen year old boys. 
You still want to look to the other side of the court and figure out the opponent's strengths and weaknesses. You still want to know what patterns of play that are going to help you. And, you know, in some ways, as, as I relate the strategy, it's, it's very, very simple strategy. There's a mountain of data. You know, there could be, you know, a ream of 100 pages of data, you know, to go through and analyze an opponent. But when I sit down and speak with the players, you know, the, the art of, uh, is to simplify the message. So that's, that, that's one part of it. You know, let's say you were sitting at a table, uh, we're in a, maybe in a restaurant and there's a, you know, you know, I'm talking to a player on the other side of the wall and you can hear the conversation. And you're like, okay, I know Craig's going to talk with Novak at some stage, and he's going to talk with a, a junior in the you know Australian Open juniors. But you don't know which – you hear the two conversations. And it's going to be very difficult for you to figure out if I'm talking to the junior or if I'm talking to Novak. They're going to be very, very, very similar. Um, to actually, you know, to, to work one-on-one with them, you know, their, their level of professionalism is so high, um, you know, with everything that they're doing, whether it's, you know, preparing their body – uh, it's it's the diet, it's the practice schedule, it's the understanding of the opponent. Um, you know, a, a lot of times you can you can look at a young player like you know that, that they get high, but you look at everything around them. You look at how professional are they in, in all the elements of, of of their trade, and you know that's a huge deal. Um, you know, I just just in the last couple of days, I was watching a video of Wayne Ferreira on on Twitter, and he's working with Francis Tiafo. And they said, you know, what kind of things are you working with Francis? And he's like, you know, to be, he said, to be honest, it's about taking the phone away from him and the screen time and, and making sure that, you know, if he's at the event, he's been professional. And, and even to the point, and I agree with Wayne 100% with this, is that when Francis goes into the training room and, you know, he may be laying on a training table for 30 minutes getting, um, getting treatment, that he's not on his phone. He, you know, you would never find you know, that the best players in the world kind of cutting a corner, you know, that in any area that could mean them winning more matches and being more professional and ultimately being the best that they can on the court. So the, these the, the elite players take that to another level, whereas, you know, players that maybe further further down the rankings that, that may have, you know, similar abilities, but they're not quite as serious about their preparation, ultimately that will tell on the court. That's crazy to hear. Oh, there's no shortcuts, is there? There's not exactly. There's no shortcuts. In fact, you know, the, the more elements you can find, um, you know, it, they, we talk about control of the controllables. The best players in the world find every single thing that they can control and do it as good as they possibly can. Yeah, makes total sense. It's great to hear you say it. And so listeners can hear how these guys, you know, you got to keep keep on getting told how these guys, how committed they are and how focused they are and, Did you know we have over 170 great episodes with coaches, players, trainers and experts working at the highest level of the game? Tap the subscribe button on your podcast app so you don't miss out on the latest episodes of the podcast. And to listen to our great back catalogue of episodes with the biggest game changers in tennis, go to functionaltennispodcast.com. What about data overload? Now, I did hear a good one this morning. I never heard this one before. They said statistics are like a bikini. They show a lot, but not everything. (laughs) <laughs> I'd never heard that before. Okay. I thought it was quite good. So yeah, how do you stop data overload? And also to sometimes the data is exactly not shown what's going on. Yeah, good point. You know, as I mentioned earlier, um, the video is the key element. So, you know, I, my background is I have a journalism degree. 
Um, in high school, I almost failed math. You know, I'm I'm much more on the English side, the writing side. You know, that 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 was always very enjoyable for me. And now I've been able to combine tennis and writing, and you know, which is a ton of fun. But you know, when you look at um, you know the, the data side of it, you know that that's the, the math side. That that's that was never a strength of of what I did, and and that you know kind of explains my process. Is that the first thing I'm going to to look at when analyzing a match is absolutely you know I've got the video in front of me and I've got the data in front. Of me. The first thing I'm going to do is go to the data because you know the data is like a language. You know, example, I don't understand. The Japanese language. I don't understand, you know, what what it looks like. I can't look at any of those characters and figure out what's going on. I just haven't learned it. But you know, for a lot of people, you look at data of a tennis match and you look at it and it's like, I have no idea what happened here. And you know, from doing this, from specialising in this area for a lot of years, I can look at the data and tell you almost how the player was feeling in the match based on you know what they should be doing. I know the metrics. Like, you know, let's say Roger Federer won 3-3-3 three, three, and three in a Wimbledon match. You know, we can sit down before we even saw the data and 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 kind of predict what those metrics would be. And so you go to the data first, you get a feel for the match, and then you go to the video. Because the video is everything. What I'm doing, it's it's not about the data. It's it's simply about the strategy. It's about the strategy of winning tennis matches and that it's an easier message and it's a stickier message to actually see it in video. That's the key. So, for instance, you know, um, the, the data may say I made six backhand errors. Okay, great. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to click on that number six, which is going to bring those six backhand errors up. And what you're going to find nine times out of ten is is four of those six, the majority of those six are exactly the same error. They could be I'm going down the line, hitting the ball right and messing it wide in the alley. You know, rarely does somebody have a weakness and they're spraying it in 20 different directions. They're typically, it's the same problem happening again and again and again and again. So, you know, when I see, you know, a number that's really, really good or really, really bad, I, I can't know, you know, let's say the number's 20. You know, we've got 20 aces. I know 12 of them are probably in the same spot. We've got, you know, you've won 25 points at net. You know, 17 of them are going to be a forehand approach to the backhand. You know, it's once you start doing something well, you want to continue to do it. So, you know, the your your specific question was how do you avoid data overload is that you make video the centerpiece of the presentation. Use data to, to find the video that you want to look at. So the last thing you want to do with a player is, is sit them down and watch every point of the match. You know, they're going to lose focus and interest and not every point's worth the same. Not every point's important, but you use the data to go and look at the right points in the match um, from the match video. And should they watch more data? I'm just reading that book at the, sorry, more video. I'm just reading that book the minute by Dynasty. It's based on the New England Patriots, which is an amazing book. It was just an apartment about Tom Brady had his first bad game, his worst game in two years. He got home, got off the plane at like 2 a.m. and he just spent all night looking at video of that film, what he did wrong. Yeah. And I know NFL is renowned for it, but do you think tennis players should be watching a lot more video? Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt. And you know what I think is one of the funniest things is in December, every year, the players have their off season and, you know, it's like, okay, you know, which is essentially a really good time for the body to rest that, you know, you need to freshen up. You need to almost walk away from the sport. And, and I see 
players go out there and, you know, they're training. The intentions are good. Yes, I'm on the court hitting a bunch of balls. Yes, I'm in the gym trying to get fitter. There's a time for that. But, you know, as part of a regime to become a better tennis player and ultimately gather more wins next season than I did this season, you don't see a player sitting at a computer looking at a match going, oh, I'm studying Rafa. I'm studying him because um, he does things better than me and I want to copy him. And also I hope to play him next year and I'm figuring out right now how to beat him. I mean, that, those, those, those tweets aren't there. They don't exist, but they should. They should exist. Yes, players should be studying more video. There's no question. Yeah, and yeah, they spend enough time in airports and airplanes and hotels. They could, oh my goodness, a little bit more. You know all about it. But and and from juniors' point of view, so just two questions about juniors. Is one first question be when should parents look at this side of tennis, the your side, the stats side, and say, okay, let's figure out a way to start applying these to our child's game, and two. Uh, Craig, what are the big difference in numbers between a junior player and a good senior player? Where do you see the big differences? Uh, I'm currently working with a 10-year-old boy. So, you know, he, we've got in the team, we've got his coach, who's a very good friend of mine. Um, we've got the dad and we've got match videos. So they send me the videos. We have them tagged. We put them all together into one unit and, and we look at the analytics and figure out where this 10-year-old is doing well and where the 10-year-old is, is is not doing well. So, you know, one of the best patterns of play on the pro tour is to hit run around forehands. And this kid, this 10-year-old, is doing a phenomenal job at it. So the fact that I can say, okay, I want you to watch this video of Novak running around running around his back and hit a forehand. I'm like, that's a good thing. Now here's a video of Roger doing it. Now here's a video of Rafa doing it. Now here's a video, is a five-minute video of you doing it in, in all of these points. And so it becomes very powerful for this kid to know, wow, you know, and it's a little by accident, but it's very apparent for him that he's doing the right strategy, you know, uh, early on. We look at the patterns that he's doing well. We look at the patterns that aren't doing well. well what he's also doing, you know, which is common in 10 years, he's hitting way too many half volleys. You know, the ball's landing in the middle of the court. And he's got to make a decision. Do I run my back? Do I go in? So we're like, you know, let's try and take the half volley out of it because there's, there's just a lot of errors in, in that part of, of his game. So um, we also, I have a course that I, I produced with Warren Pretorius called Game Plan. And we have a lot of data from 10s, 12s, 14s, 16s, 18s, it's, and then college tennis and the pros. And it's all about the player development pathway. So we know where this 10-year-old is. You know, he's in the under 12 bracket and already doing well there. But we know what his metrics are down the line. Um, we know that, you know, going to the net's a good thing. So, you know, this 10-year-old is not going to know at this stage, and the coach really isn't going to know. It's like, do we start uh, do we start teaching this kid to go to the net? Well, we look at his match analytics, and he's going to the net already twice the amount as, as his opponents, and we just encourage the daylights out of it, and we show the right way to go in. We show hit a forehand to the backhand, but at 10, he's going to get lobbed a lot. So we show him the exact time to stop, which is, you know, hit the approach, go around the service line, and just pause for a second. And look at your opponent because there's a pretty good chance he's going to lob. And if he lobs, you can't keep going forward. So instead of him being 16 years of age and saying, okay, I'd really like to add going to the net to my game, we're incorporating that right now at 10. So he's going to have six years of, 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 of nailing that. You know, he's going to be really proficient at 16, where a lot of other players 
games, it'll be kind of their entry point of like, okay, let me try and add this to his game. So, you know, essentially, when do you start with this service, which I think was your question, as soon as you start competing is the answer to that. If you start playing matches and and, and winning and losing is important, then we can look at the strategy of the game. And let's say I get my match tracked or the kids get their match tracked, charted, sorry, or charted by you. How many matches should, every match should be done? It's not good enough getting one match done and showing up 10 matches later and doing it again. Yeah, um, you know, ideally you want very competitive matches to look at. So, you know, the girl that was playing over in Tunisia and Egypt, you know, I think we just did um, a group of 14 matches. Um, I made sure that, you know, we got all the losses. They're very important to figure out. But, you know, there were a couple of extra matches that she won 11 one or one and one and and I left that out of the data set because it's, you know, it's it, it, it's a match that should be won. And I'll still look at it, but I didn't want to put that in with the total. So, you know, ideally, you know, lately I've done, you know, a few sets of 12 matches and I try and get, you know, it's either going to be eight wins and four losses or six wins and six losses. And, and you know, that's going to that's going to tell a lot. But even if you have one, you know, let's say, say, Craig, we've only got one match, but it's competitive. You know, it, it, it's, a, it's a very good match, good quality, good match. There's so much you can learn out of that one match. But as you increase the data set, things become a little bit clearer as well. So, you know, getting, you know, four is, is a great number. You know, it's, um, you know, when Novak played the, Australia, the US Open and won it in 2018, I did every match, the seven matches all together. And that was a really good, robust data set to see what he did well in that tournament um, and what he didn't do well. And, you know, part of it is, you know, the, the initial conversation I had with Novak, um, you know, I said, how can I help you with all of this? And he's like, well, you know, part of it is um, I, I want game plans before I tournaments, but, you know, Craig, there's probably things on the court that, I, I think that are the right things to do that may not be. Maybe the data says I'm not winning nearly enough at, at that. And there's things on the court that maybe I shouldn't be doing that I should be doing. You know, and a couple of areas of that is, um, you know, Novak hits a ton of drop shots. You know, especially, especially well, last year, um, you know, he just overdosed on it. He did way too many. But, you know, unless he is currently getting his matches tagged and looks at the win percentage, He's not going to know whether whether that's a good thing or not. So um, the data is going to tell you, yes, th- these areas of your game you need to do more of that you're not aware of, and yes, these areas of your game you think are great for you, they're actually not. Yeah, he definitely upped the drop shots at the US Open last year. I was mad. Were you part of that? No, I wasn't. I didn't work with him last year in 2020. But where, it went, where he went ballistic with it was when it went to clay. So I remember he played at Rome. Oh, sorry, it was. You're Rome right. Ro- yes. Yeah, it was Rome and Roland Garros. Yes. Yeah, and, you know, I, I I haven't tagged that. I've got those matches and I can go back and look at it. And I am. And I'm going to put that um, information into one of my courses. But I would guess he, you know, I, I don't know for a fact yet, but I guess he hit somewhere in the range of 80 to 100 drop shots during those two tournaments. Uh, and I, there's just no way he won more than 50% of those points. I would say... It was more in the 35 to 40% range, which is about the worst thing, hit, you know, percentage you'll ever get on the tennis court. So, you know, you want to be looking at that and going, Novak, your last 12 drop shots, you haven't done well. You know, you only want three, you know, and let's have a look at the, so then you would say, let's have a look at the nine you lost. You're too far behind the baseline. You're putting too much, you know, you're trying for something that's, that's too difficult. The opponent's kind of on it. 
Um, you're bailing out of a point. There's no need to hit a drop shot there. And that's the kind of learning that really, really matters as you go through. So, you know, for the pros to have a coach all the time, if something goes off in their game, in an ideal world for a pro player, it'll go off only for a few minutes and the coach is going to identify that and fix that problem. Whereas, you know, a recreational player, you have something go off in your game, it can, it can go off for the rest of your life. True. You, you may not have an awareness of that. That's what I was thinking. I was going to say the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, so just we just uh, we're still finishing this question here but uh, the difference between the stats you'd see in it let's say a top junior and a top senior from stats like is there anything that is there one thing that really sticks out well the, the things that are the same that you know it, the, whether it's a top junior or a top senior the zero through four rally length is still going to be the best indicator for who wins and loses the matches. Um, what you find with the younger players is, you know, essentially there's, you know, a point ends with a winner or an error. And, you know, if you break errors down, you know, we've got these two, these two labels called, you know, forced and unforced. And, and you know, an unforced error is, is so arbitrary. Um, you know, we don't really, you know, I, I've shown them to, at coaches' symposiums, and they have no idea the difference between the two. So I'm not a huge fan of the unforced error at all. But essentially, you know, I, I bring it up here because forcing an error, uh, uh, making the opponent uncomfortable, is is the ultimate thing that you want to do on a tennis court. It's not hitting a winner. And for juniors, you're going to see them, you know, trying to hit a lot of winners and 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 failing at that. And essentially, you know, there's there's eight ways to force an error. So you've got consistency, which is I'm just going to put more balls in the court than you. Direction, left and right. Depth, front and back. And height, which is you know low or, or up above the shoulder. So those four areas um, revolve around the court. Then you go to the ball, which is spin and power. So you're at six. Um, and then you have your court position and then the time that, that you – or the lack of time you give your opponent to prepare for the shot. So juniors get very much involved with power and direction. And, and that dominates their mind. I've got to hit it away from my opponent, and the harder I hit it, the better. Whereas a pro is going to say, you know, I, I'm going to have better height, I'm going to have better depth, I'm going to put more spin on the ball. And, and the pro is going to, you know, use all eight of those areas to force errors instead of just relying on one or two. So their game becomes, you know, a bit uh, more well, well-rounded, um, and, and which takes away kind of the bad errors. You know, if you look at a junior and say, um, let's look at, let's organize 100 points. So you played a match and there was 100 points in it. So we put in order your very your very best points strategically at number one. And then we go down through all the way to 100. So 100 is your worst point. Um, so essentially what happens with these, with these kids is that the, the, their top 20 points are actually really, really good. There's no real problem there. But their bottom 20 are really bad. So what you try and teach them is that we, we're going to keep your top 20 points exactly the same, but we're going to reduce, we're going to make your 80th worst error from yesterday. That's going to be your 100th worst error tomorrow. So reducing the bad errors is a much quicker way to improve as a player than trying to make your good errors even better. Nice. That's that's a really good way of putting it. And the results, I say, can move pretty quick then. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just just play, you know, just, just don't make your good points better. You don't need to. They're already amazing. 
They're already high percentage, amazing shots. But we always want to, you know, hit a better ball or win a better point or or hit more winners. And it's like, just do more of this. And, and that's a message that that is very important for junior players. And is there an average age where you see that mentality shift happen happening? Or is there a certain level of player you say, okay, the player gets to 220 in the world, and this when this usually happens? It's a maturity thing with kids. So, you know, it's very tough for them to wrap their heads around it in 12s and 14s. It kind of, the enlightening starts to happen in 16s, you know, where, that, where they really start to get it. You know, there's, there's uh, from the pro tour, um, you know, there, there is a real line in the sand with the top 100, you know, just as a ranking. If you're ranked, you know, you could be ranked 120 and, you know, to, to get those 20 spots to 100, it's really, really difficult. It's, it's, it's so much tougher to go from 120 to 100 than 140 to 120. And that dividing line in the sand the players that make the top 100 that reach 90 and reach 80 and reach 70 and may not even go any further than that, they still figure something out better than the player that's ranked 120. There's a, between, you know, there's 40 spots. Between 80 and 40, I, I think there's there's less difference between 80 and 40 than there is between 80 and 120. Okay. It's, it's a tough world out there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a, you know, and a lot of times with that 100, it's such a big line because, you know, that's that's your main draw entry into the Grand Slams. Even though there's 128 to play, you know, you've got wild cards and you've got qualifiers and then you've got some special exemptions and then you've got protected rankings. So it generally, the cut's generally right around 100, maybe sometimes 98. So, you know, you want your ranking to be in 100 desperately so that you can play those four Grand Slams and even if you lose first round, you know, you've, you've already won a quarter of a million dollars. So it, it, it helped, you know, there's so much more of the money's tied up in those slams. Um, I think, you know, the, to lose first round of the Australian Open right now is $100,000. So, you know, if, if you are if you are one out and you're in qualifying and, you know, you, you're, you know, you know, it's a feeding frenzy of sharks in qualifying trying to make it through to that main draw round. So to, it's a big difference in, 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 to, to make sure you're in that first round of, of a main draw at a grand slam. True, so that's where somebody like your services can make it, you know, can earn their money. But uh, last question for you, Craig. It's we've we've had a we've had a few sports psychologists on the show, and they fought their corner. And I really love what they do. They've done a great job. And now we're seeing your side of things. So if I'm a player, I'm ranked 150 in the world, and like many Irish players who've been stuck at that level over the years, and they're trying to get the breakthrough top hundred so they can be you know, they can show up at all the slams and they have a choice. Do I get a sports psychologist or do I get your services? Uh, fight your corner. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. So, um, you know, again, I'll go back to the Rajiv Ram story. So, um, remember, Rajiv was 80. He drifted out to 180. I started working with him. We did all the analysis of his game. We found the holes. We had him back to 80 in a year. Um that conversation started at Wimbledon. We were at uh, the Dog and Fox um, pub at the, you know, at the top of Church Road there, which is, you know, after a day's play, everybody goes up into the Wimbledon village and, you know, the Dog and Fox has got a, this great beer garden, you know, out the front. And, you know, I'm standing there um, with one of my friends and in walks Rajiv and another one of my friends. And so we started talking and I said, you know, Rajiv, what's going on? He's like, well, you know, my game's not doing well. I lost in qualities here. I'm back to 180. You know, but he goes, but I've hired a fitness guy. And so that's, you know, by hiring the fitness guy, 
that's going to get me back to where I need to be because, you know, I'm being told that, you know, I need to be fitter. I need to stay on the baseline. I need, I need to grind more. And I said, if you want to be the fittest guy at, in, that's ranked 180 in the world, then stick with him. But I said, if you want to get back into 100 in the world, you fire the fitness guy immediately and you hire me and I'll take you back there. And I said, you know, he's like, it's all about getting fitter. I go, like, it's not. It's not about getting fitter. Fitness is an element. But, you know, you really rely on your fitness in a match when you're on defense. And, and you don't want to be on defense, number one. You want to be on offense. You want to be the person controlling the ball. It's not about running more. It's a tennis is a game of patterns, and it's a game of repeatable patterns. It looks like pinball, but it's not. And for Rajiv, it was really simple. He's really, really good at serving and bowling. He's, you know, when he came back and beat Dimitrov in that first match in, in Atlanta when I started working with him, I think he won 32 or 36 serving volley points. And, you know, Rajiv's 180. He went through qualifying at that event. And, um, you know, Dimitrov was 50 in the world. So, you know, it's, it's, all, it's, it's knowing who you are as a player, and Rajiv was lost with that, but it's also knowing the strengths and weaknesses of the opponent and, and knowing, you know, what, think of an advantage like this. You know where the opponent's going to serve. Like, but, you know, they bounce the ball and they yell out to you, hey, I'm going to serve down the tee. How much of an advantage is that? And that's what I do. I know on certain points that there's, the, the point score creates pressure. A player's going to serve at a different spot at love 30 and 30 love. They're going to be different spots for different reasons. So that that's what I bring to the table. So Rajiv did fire the fitness guy, and I did come on, and we did get him back to, to 80 in the world. So there's uh, there's there's a, a good story for my battle. <laughs> corner well fought there. Got my corner covered. You're covered, you're covered. Okay, so guess who we're hiring? <laughs> but uh, no, thank you very much for your time. That was really insightful. And to find out more about you, what you do. Thanks a lot. Uh Best of luck with my pleasure with all the chat. Who are you actually? Who are the main players you're working with that you can say in Australia? Uh, well, Berrettini and, and Jan Leonard Struff, the two, and it also it was going to be Madison Keys, but she tested positive for COVID, so she's not going. That's unfortunate. Okay, well, look, uh, enjoy life in Austin. Uh, hope it's sunnier there than it is here. And thanks a lot. It's a good day today. Great, Fabio. Thank you. All the best, mate. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Craig. Some interesting bits in there and he's a great job to find his corner. I'll be back next week and until then, try get out onto a tennis court and enjoy yourself. Bye.